It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. This reads like a parody, but every word is true. Stanford has put out a list of approved and unapproved words that is so woke uh, that it's ridiculous. Don't call yourself an American. Well, why not? You should say U.S. citizen because you might insult the rest of the Americas. You're also not supposed to say immigrant. Instead, it's person who has immigrated. I don't even understand the logic here. And this is my favorite one. You're at Stanford and you take chemistry and you ace it and you say, well, I've mastered the subject. No, 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 that's out. You can't say master because historically, I'm just quoting here, masters enslaved people, even though the context is about 10,000% different. You can't refer to a blind study, which again, quoting, unintentionally perpetuates the disability, uh, is somehow abnormal or negative, furthering an ableist culture. You should say mass study. All right. I meant to uh, yesterday uh, wish everybody who's celebrating a happy Hanukkah. Obviously, Hanukkah gets a bit overshadowed by Christmas, but uh, on the other hand, the kids get eight presents over eight days, little ones. Um, but nevertheless, I picked up the New York Times the other day, and there was an entire, it was a story that spanned an entire section. It was about, it was an inside look at Russia's complete botching of the war in Ukraine. And it had, you could just tell it had a lot of deep reporting with, uh, somehow got access to internal emails or communications. And so, you know, I started to read it and I, I went through a full page and I think I got the gist of it. And I looked at the rest of it, I'm like turning the pages and I don't know, 5,000, 10,000 words. And I said, I don't have time to read this whole thing. And then I remembered. When you see a monster piece dropped at the end of December, it's for Pulitzer reasons. Maybe it's the last article to go along with the other reporting on Ukraine by the New York Times, but it's not aimed at you. <laughs> I mean, it would be nice. I'm sure the New York Times would appreciate it if you slogged through the whole thing. But when you see something of that length it, and you look at the calendar, this is being prepared for the Pulitzer entry. Now, a couple other things to get to before the January 6th committee. Uh, and I got some amazing stuff coming up here, including the coziness between the FBI and Twitter and the Twitter poll and Musk and the CEO business. Okay, so when I do media buzz, uh, you know, if somebody says something funny, I laugh. If somebody's saying something serious, I have a poker face. Uh, you know, I, I've been doing this a long time. I'm rarely truly shocked by somebody saying something. We had on a royal watcher named uh, Jack Royston. And my jaw literally dropped. I don't know if I was on camera at the time, but he said, he was talking about the British press just completely and totally unloading on Meghan Markle. And he said, some of the backlash has been quite extraordinary. There was a column published by a very famous columnist that said Meghan should kind of be paraded naked through the streets. Naked through the streets and have, you know, rotten eggs fly. Except he was off on the eggs part. And the person that he didn't name is Jeremy Clarkson. He is 
one of the most influential commentators in Britain. He's also the presenter of the show Top Gear. And he wrote this column for The Sun. You know, everybody in the British press is just savaging Meghan Markle. And, you know, to be fair, the, she and Harry took a bunch of shots at the firm, as it's called, Buckingham Palace. And he actually wrote that he wanted to see this happen to Meghan Markle, uh, which apparently was a scene in Game of Thrones, which I did not see, but I don't know. It's Game of Thrones. This is a real person who is still the Duchess of Sussex. Um, He says, I lie there grinding my teeth and dreaming of the day when she is made to parade naked through the streets of every town in Britain while the crowd chants shame and throw lumps of excrement at her. This was actually published in The Sun. I don't even have the words to describe how shitty this is. You know, it it is sexist, it is misogynist, it is violent, it is despicable, it is disgusting. And you know... You know, it's, there's also a level on which he wants to see Meghan Markle naked. It is just perverted is not a word I often use, but I think it fits here. So there has been now a huge backlash against Clarkson. The mayor of London, Sadi Khan, condemned the comments as dangerous and inexcusable. Clarkson's own daughter, Jerry Clarkson's own daughter, Emily, said, I want to make it very clear that I stand against everything my dad wrote about Meghan Markle. Okay, so when you... Um, lost your own family, I think it's a sign that you've really screwed up. So he tried to walk it back. He said it was clumsy. I am horrified to, of course, so much hurt. The son took the column down online at his request. But there's no apology. There's no, oh, I am so sorry. And, oh, I never should have said this. And, oh, uh, I ask for your forgiveness. No, it's just, he's, it's just pure damage control. And in the Amber Heard case, remember how Amber Heard and Johnny Death and the televised trial and how that just utterly transfixed America and almost all of vitriol was directed at Amber Heard. Well, she has now settled her defamation case against Johnny Depp because there were appeals going on. Remember, there were, I guess it was back in June, seems like five years ago, uh, a jury in Virginia awarded Depp more than $10 million. Now, as part of these appeals, she will pay him $1 million. Amber Heard saying it was a very difficult decision after a great deal of deliberation. She slammed the U.S. justice system. She said she cannot relive relive the kind of humiliation she was exposed to. It's important for me to say I never chose this. I defended my truth, and in doing so, my life as I knew it was destroyed. The vilification I have faced on social media is an amplified version of the ways in which women are re-victimized when they come forward. Now she wants to move on. Uh, Johnny Depp's attorney, Ben Chu, says we are pleased to formally close the door on this painful chapter for Mr. Depp, who made clear throughout the process of priority was bringing the truth to light. Jury's unanimous decision remains in place. The payment of $1 million, which Depp is pledging, and will donate to charities, reinforces Ms. Hurd's acknowledgement of the conclusion of the legal system's rigorous pursuit of justice. So 
if this all could be settled for a million dollars, which ends up getting given away to charity anyway, why did we need to go through a six-week trial? Why were both of them, you know, fighting? I was going to say to the death, I mean, fighting to the reputational death. I don't think either one of them looked good. I don't think Johnny Depp looked good. The things that they, in which they just... Horrible conduct on the part of both of them, but it was Amber Heard. I mean, the country just—you could argue it's because she was a woman. I don't know. The country just turned against her. Now let's get to story number one. So yesterday, and you have to know this because it's been inescapable on television. The January sixth committee held its final meeting. I can't call it a hearing because there were no witnesses. And. The whole purpose of this meeting was to sort of have a last gasp, in my view, of the television fame, which came to the committee over the last year and a half. And I'm not somebody who has always bashed the committee when the panel was hearing from Republican witnesses, whether they were former Trump administration officials or state lawmakers who felt they'd been pressured. And they were giving their firsthand accounts of what Donald Trump did. I thought it was very effective because it wasn't, you know, liberal Democrats or resistance journalists. You were hearing from people who either worked for Donald Trump or supported him in the 2020 election, worked on behalf of Donald Trump. And it was sort of more in sorrow than anger that they gave their testimony. I always felt that those hearings were marred because Benny Thompson, Liz Cheney, and others would have to, they would start out by giving the Trump is guilty speech, which you didn't need to do, get right to the testimony. But yesterday's hearing, I mean, literally was a total rehash. I mean, it was a greatest hits recitation. They put together this video, which I've seen replayed many times now, of just highlights of what some of those witnesses said. Remind people, of course, but nothing new. A few tidbits that are new that I'll get to in a second. And so, really, the only thing new was the criminal referrals. And the criminal referrals are purely symbolic. Because, let's face it, the Justice Department is investigating the hell out of Donald Trump on January 6th, on the top-secret documents he took to Mar-a-Lago, um, and on, on uh, the former president's dealing with state lawmakers. The special counsel, Jack Smith, who said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll make an independent judgment, put out a brief statement about whatever the committee says over, sends over. Um, what else would they need to be doing? You know, sometimes there's a committee that digs up something new, sends it over to justice, and justice is like, oh, we didn't know about this, and we'll look into it and see if it actually rises to the point of bringing criminal charges. That was not this. And so this committee expires in two weeks. It's done. It's going to be extinct. Republicans take over. Kevin McCarthy has made clear that the Republicans will investigate the committee and how it handled uh, its situation, this very sensitive topic, which may or may not lead to the indictment of a former president. Now, I get it that it's historic. I get it. Never before as a committee of Congress recommended criminal charges against a former president. But again, who needs their criminal referrals? It's just 
for them to have been able to grandstand one final time. But here's the thing. I don't know how many millions of people were watching when the hearing took place in the afternoon. It was carried live on CNN, Fox, MSNBC. But since then, it has just been over and over and over. And Adam Schiff and just about every other committee member have been making the rounds, interviewed on various channels. Um, so, so that's going on. MSNBC in particular has essentially been wall-to-wall. A few exceptions. Essentially been wall-to-wall in its coverage yesterday afternoon, last night, and this morning. With a very heavy emphasis, obviously, on the criminal referrals. And now let's go talk to Zoe Lofkin or whoever. CNN, not as much, but has covered it heavily. I saw Adam Schiff on CNN this morning. Um, so, you know, maybe top of the hour and, and the bottom of the half hour, but are covering other things. And I think Fox is covering it less, but Fox carried it. And Fox has also talked about, a little more critically, uh, the makeup of the committee. And remember, it now appears in retrospect to have been um, a tactical blunder on the part of Kevin McCarthy when he was so mad that Nancy Pelosi knocked off two of his suggested members for the committee, that he pulled the other ones. He could have had Jim Jordan on that committee, but no. And so, and even Donald Trump criticized him for that. Um, So as a result, we have nine members of the committee, seven anti-Trump Democrats, and two anti-Trump Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And so... Everything this panel had done, has done, has been soaked in partisanship. Keep in mind, you know, if you're somebody who thinks Donald Trump deserves to be indicted and you've thought the committee did a great job, how would you feel if uh, Republicans take over the House, and January 3rd is the exact date, and... um, decide that it's going to have a committee with only Republicans on it and look into the possible impeachment of Joe Biden or the possible ability of criminal refers, referrals, to keep the analogy exact, of Joe Biden. Starts talking about uh, you know, Hunter Biden and uh, he's the big guy and did he get any money and did he take meetings and did he know this? And it's all Republicans, and there's no dissenting voices. Wouldn't that make you mad? So, you know, it made for a a more unified and tighter narrative, but it's not what congressional committees usually are. Now, to some of the new stuff. Hope Hicks, who, of course, was one of Donald Trump's first two aides in his uh, presidential campaign back in 2015. I remember when I first met her. It was Hope Hicks and Corey Lewandowski. That was it. Um, there was a, some of these are descriptions by the members rather than showing us the actual text. But um, during the back and forth on January 6th, and by the way, nothing I'm saying here is to diminish the horror of that dark day under the dome or to say that, you know, Trump's being railroaded here. I mean, he has to take responsibility for what he did, whether it's criminal, it will be for others to decide. 
Um, so Hope Hicks sent a text to another staffer who said to her, hey, I know you're seeing this, but referring to President Trump, he really should tweet something about being nonviolent. I'm not there, Hicks said. I suggested it several times Monday and Tuesday, and he refused. Uh, when she was asked by the committee in her deposition, she said that the he there wasn't the president, but it was Eric Hirschman, uh, White House legal aide. Sure, I didn't speak to the president about this directly, but I communicated to people like Eric Hirschman that it was my view that it was important that the president put out some kind of message in advance of the event. What was Hirschman's response? Mr. Hirschman said he had made the same recommendation directly to the president and that he had refused. So even Hope Hicks was worried about what was going to happen on January 6th and tried to dissuade her boss. She also said, and this is crucial, there was no evidence of fraud on a scale that would have impacted the outcome of the election and was becoming increasingly concerned we were damaging his legacy. Now, uh, Zoe Lofgren uh, said at the hearing that money was used to provide or offer employment to witnesses in an apparent attempt to dissuade them. Uh, one was offered a really good job. But if you don't name the names and you say this may have been an effort, then what's the point of bringing it up? you got to name the names. The other thing that, uh, you know, and by the way, the committee had leaked all this in advance, as it always does, so, you know, when you tune in, you knew what was going to happen. The committee also referred to Justice four Republican members of Congress for refusing to comply with subpoenas. We'll see whether that goes anywhere. One of them, and this is so bizarre, is Kevin McCarthy. So two weeks from now, Kevin McCarthy could be the Speaker of the House. And here you have the Democrats on this committee and the two anti-Trump Republicans telling the Justice Department to take a look at Kevin McCarthy, along with Andy Biggs, who's challenging him for the speakership, Jim Jordan, and Scott Petty. Excuse me, Scott Perry. And uh, also, uh, please take a look at Mark Meadows. We've seen those thousands of texts that were leaked to Talking Points Memo. And please take a look at Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, Jeffrey Clark, and Ken Chesborough. Uh, the committee also put up a 100-page executive summary of the report, focused almost entirely on Trump, as Liz Cheney wanted, as opposed to, you know, legislative recommendations about uh, better security of the Capitol and that sort of thing. None of the events of January 6th would have happened without him, the report says. I, that's beyond dispute. But is it a criminal offense? I mean, it gets down to, did he incite this riot? Did he foment this riot? Did he not care that some people were armed? Um, and why did he spend so much time watching it on TV and not telling his supporters to go home. Maggie Haberman in the New York Times, Trump has significantly diminished, shrunken presence on the political landscape. His fate is partly a function of his own missteps and miscalculations in recent months, but it's also a product, a product of the voluminous evidence assembled by the House Committee. She goes on to say, um, 
To be sure, the talk of Trump's current fortunes is like a movie they have seen before. One in which the lead figure is left for dead, only to rise again. And that brings me to what the president, former president of the United States, has to say about all this on Truth Social. Fake charges by the highly partisan unselect committee. Double jeopardy, anyone? Okay, former president must know that if you are impeached and acquitted, it doesn't mean you can't be charged with a crime by the justice system. They're two entirely different things. Um, the people understand that the Democratic Bureau of Investigation are out to keep me from running for president because they know I'll win. Partisan attempt to sideline me and the Republican Party. Well, the Republican Party is split. And then he says, these folks don't get it, that when they come after me, people who love freedom rally around me. It strengthens me. And I think he's right with his base. The question is, how large a base does he still have now that it looks like Ron DeSantis and others may challenge him? What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And in all, oh, uh, I went on television and told everyone to go home. Yeah, after people were killed. Um, and then in all caps, I did nothing wrong. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Story number two. Harvey Weinstein has been found guilty of rape of one woman in this trial out in L.A. after nine days of deliberation, but it was a mixed verdict. So the one woman is the Italian actress, and there's actually, I guess, a security video or something, some kind of video of her talking to him through his hotel door, and he's telling her to come in. She says she was raped and sexually assaulted. And for that, he was found guilty he faces the possibility of 18 to 24 years behind bars in California. He would serve that time after completing his sentence in New York, where he still has 21 years left in prison. But if he wins his appeal in New York, this would be sort of an insurance policy. And this uh, happened back in 2013. Now, the jury acquitted Weinstein of one count of sexual battery involving a massage therapist and could not reach a verdict on two other women who made these charges. One of them, Jennifer Seibel Newsom, the first lady of California, Gavin Newsom's wife. She put out a statement, even though she was not able to win, win in the sense that she, he would be held accountable for what she says happened in a hotel room back in 2005 uh, in Beverly Hills. He will spend the rest of his life behind bars where he belongs, Harvey Weinstein is a serial predator, and what he did was rape. Now remember, in a just despicable opening statement, Weinstein's attorneys, you know, went after the women, said, oh, you know, they all played this game, they all had consensual sex with him because they were all wannabe actresses trying to get ahead, and particularly 
uh, went after Mrs. Newsom, saying she was just another bimbo who slept with Harvey Weinstein to get ahead. In her statement, she said throughout the trial, Weinstein's lawyers used sexism, misogyny, and bullying tactics to intimidate, demean, and ridicule us survivors. Trial was a stark reminder that as a society, we have work to do. All right, number three. There's another episode of the Twitter files, and I guess I should start by saying, yes, um, since he put up the poll saying, should he step down as CEO? Elon Musk has not said anything about actually stepping down as CEO, but I think he will. He's made a couple of comments about, you know, people who want power too much can't be trusted. And he said he, he apologized for taking decisions without, was it putting up a poll or consulting with others? Said he was sorry. But then he did it again by taking down this stupid rule that he had put up there about you can't be, you can't uh, promote another social network, another social media network, if you're on Twitter. And that's now apparently gone. Anyway, the coziness between the FBI and Twitter is really something. But up until this moment, I didn't think, I thought there was a lot of smoke there. But I wasn't sure anything was, was, but no smoking gun, I guess is the easiest way to put it. But now, a guy named Michael Schellenbarger, who works for Barry Weiss in her new free press outfit, um, went through new stuff and has uh, the relationship between FBI Special Agent Elvis Chan sending two documents to the head of integrity, Yoel Roth, who, by the way, you know, despises Trump. It was a one-way communications channel from the FBI to Twitter. This goes back to the Hunter Biden laptop thing. Remember, this is how it all got started. When Twitter suppressed, banned, censured, censored any uh, sharing of the Hunter Biden laptop story by the New York Post, which was true. The New York Post had access to the laptop provided by Rudy Giuliani. So, during all of 2020, Schellenberger writes, the FBI and other law enforcement agencies repeatedly primed Yoel Roth to dismiss reports of Hunter Biden's laptop as a Russian hack and leak operation. And my reaction was, okay, where's the proof? Sworn deposition by Roth, December 2020. I learned in these meetings there were rumors that a hack and leak operation would involve Hunter Biden. Now, you could say just rumors, but this is the first time. Because the FBI got a lot of stuff taken down on Twitter, but it was mostly stuff about other people who, you know, had small followings. But here, oh, yeah, did you know there were rumors about the Hunter Biden thing being a hack and leak operation by Moscow? Same thing with Facebook, meetings took place too. So is there any new intelligence? Through our investigations, we did not see any similar competing intrusions to what had happened in 2016, says the FBI agent. Now, September 2020, Twitter told FBI it had removed 345 largely inactive accounts linked to previous coordinated Russian uh, efforts. 
So these were the really, really uh, small fish, I was going to say. They're guppies. Now, um, Roth again, January 2020. We've seen a sustained effort by the intelligence community to push us to share more info and change our policies. They are probing and pushing everywhere they can, including by whispering to congressional staff. Time and again, FBI asked Twitter for evidence of foreign influence, and Twitter responds they aren't finding anything worth reporting. Despite the pushback, uh, FBI repeatedly requests information from Twitter. July 2020, FBI's Elvis Chan arranges for temporary top-secret security clearances for Twitter executives so the FBI can share information about threats to the upcoming elections starting 30 days out. Top-secret security clearances. Yoel Roth uh, told Kara Swisher on her podcast that he had been primed to think about the Russian hacking group before news of the Hunter Biden laptop came out. It set off every single one of my finely tuned hack and leap campaign alarm bells. August 2020, FBI's chance says, anyone up there have top secret clearance? Which brings us to Jim Baker, former FBI general counsel. Got the whole Trump investigation started. Hugely controversial. He gets hired by Twitter. So did he have the clearance? Also, the former deputy chief of staff to Comey, Dawn Burton. She was hired by Twitter. As of 2020, there were so many former FBI employees working at Twitter that they created their own private Slack channel. Okay, finally, here's the last thing on this. Um, In September of 2020, Yoel Roth participated uh, in an Aspen Institute. Um, it's called the tabletop exercise. It's wargaming on a potential hack and dump operation relating to Hunter Biden. Just incredible. All right, number four. The Washington Post has sort of this long, long piece about. Trump at Mar-a-Lago. And I, I, I share it with you because it's kind of sad. It says that um, he's now surrounded almost exclusively by sycophants because there's no senior aide with him at Mar-a-Lago. They come and go when, they, when he needs to talk to them. Uh, one of uh, his employees and press people uh, is a former host at One American News. Uh, goes around with him when he plays golf. She prints out articles to show him. Uh, and sends emails to reporters. Another one, former assistant in the White House, calls around to his network of allies, uh, asking them to uh, boost Donald Trump, boost his spirits with positive affirmations. Um, David Urban, former Trump advisor, now big critic, uh, he needs someone there to say, here's a really bad idea, and this is why. I don't think he has that kind of crowd around him right now. Uh, so what does he do? Plays a lot of golf. Oh, here's an unnamed quote, Trump confidant, saying, using the word sad and saying, comparing it to life at the White House, it's like a Barbie dream house miniature. Um, so what's happened, according to this piece in the Post, is that, you know, he's, like any former president, he's had to adjust you don't have the big Secret Service detail and motorcade. You do have some Secret Service protection, of course. Um, 
He doesn't have a major aircraft. Can't use Air Force One and his own Trump 757 is in the shop with repairs that are taking a very long time. Um, at one point in early 2021, Trump asked the team of advisors he could, if he could summon a press pool, as he did routinely as president, as every president does, at the Florida club. But there was no pool on call because he's no longer president. We had to explain to him, said a former aide, that he didn't have a group standing around waiting for him anymore. Instead, they gathered the few reporters who happened to be reporting in Palm Beach. According to two people familiar, he was routinely angry about being removed from Twitter. You can go uh, back on right now. It was a really, really, it was a really dark, dark time, the aide said, recalling that the staff would ask, are you going to set up a library? What's your presidential foundation? He wasn't interested in any of that at all because he thinks he won in 2020. And obviously he would like to win in 2024. Typical day, gets up, makes phone calls, watches TV, reads some newspapers, plays 18, sometimes 27 holes of golf. This is whether he's at Mar-a-Lago or New Jersey. In the evening, he emerges for dinner. And I, you know, the one time I went to Mar-a-Lago to interview Donald Trump, you know, it's a big patio overlooking the ocean, just a gorgeous spot. And there are a lot of people around. And they stand and applaud when he comes back, when he comes out. And they stand and applaud when he finishes dining and retires for the evening. He ordered special meals from the kitchen. Um, former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly said senior staff dreaded the time the president was at the Palm Beach Club because he would often return to Washington brimming with off-the-wall ideas planted by Mar-a-Lago members, because anybody can pretty much go up to him. So many members knew exactly how to get what they wanted from him, said Kelly. It was all about his vanity. It was never good when he went there, when he was there for long periods of time. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Now let me wrap up with story number five. I wanted to get to this yesterday. I knew about it. I just didn't have the room, and I'm going to go into a little overtime here. The New York Times has a devastating piece about George Santos. He is a guy, a Republican, who won election to the House from a Long Island district. Um just last month. He had run uh, earlier for the same seat in 2020 and didn't win. And he told this, you know, kind of a storybook journey. Son of Brazilian immigrants, first openly gay Republican to win a House seat as a non-incumbent, catapulted himself from a New York City public college to become a seasoned Wall Street financier and investor, family-owned real estate portfolio of 13 properties, and an animal rescue charity that saved more than 2,500 dogs and cats. But a New York Times review of documents and court filings, uh, this is me talking now. It looks like he made most of this up. So, this wouldn't have been that hard for anybody to find. It's really a failure of the opposition campaign. I mean, how do you not vet the guy's resume? And then, you know, I think it's a fair bit of speculation to say he would not have won. So, um, the two Wall Street firms listed on Santos's campaign biography, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, told the New York Times they had no record of his ever working there. It's two phone calls, folks. Officials at Brook College, Santos says he graduated in 2010, could find no record of anyone matching his name and date of birth graduating that year. 
Also little evidence that this animal rescue group was a tax-exempt organization, as he claimed the IRS could find no record of a registered charity with that name. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Uh, financial disclosure forms suggest a life of some wealth. He lent his campaign more than $700,000 during the midterm election. And he donated thousands to other candidates. Uh, he reported a $750,000 salary and over $1 million in dividends from his company, the Devalder Organization. Yet this company, wait for it, has no public website, no LinkedIn page, something of a mystery. He once described it as the family firm that managed $80 million in assets. Um, but the disclosures don't reveal any clients which election law experts said could be problematic if such clients existed. And they times went to him, went to his campaign, like, what about this? Wouldn't answer any questions, provide a single piece of paper that would document anything that he claimed on this inflated resume. And his lawyer says, you know, let's bash the press. No surprise that Congressman-elect Santos has enemies at the New York Times who are attempting to smear his good name with these defamatory allegations. Well, if they are defamatory allegations, why don't you prove them to be untrue by documenting anything in here? Um, I don't know whether this guy will even be able to be seated. I mean, maybe he will. Then will he face an ethics committee investigation? I don't know. But this is pretty, pretty awful. Once again, always appreciate your listening. Thank you for sharing this time with me. Subscribe if you haven't already done it. Apple iTunes is a pretty good place. You get it without any ads. Back here tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.